This is an ABC podcast. Those that have a go will get a go. Well, I've had a go, mate. I've worked for my life. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I thought that election campaigns are tests of leadership, not tests of memory. Google it, mate. We had the debate. We worked through the hard issues. We came to an agreement. And I went to Glasgow. Well, hello, Canberra! I'm Fran Kelly from Afternoon Briefing. My bubble is a failure. I spilt half of mine on the floor back there. I'm Fran Kelly from Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast. And And this this is is Party Room Live! And before we continue, I just want to acknowledge... Well, we want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we stand, the Ngunnawal people, um, and respect their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for having us. It's been three years since we did a show just before the election here. Friend, friend. Here in the Canberra bubble. Yeah. (laughs) Boom, boom. They're loving it. They loved it three years ago. They still love the gag. (laughs) But unfortunately, the bubbles burst. What? The bubble burst. What do you mean? The bubble burst. Whose bubble? Scott Morrison's bubble. Ah, boom, boom. Yeah. I rehearsed that in our meeting and she said, it's not funny, PK. And I said, it's, it's as funny as we can get. I get up the time you used to get up now. It's funny. It's a funny time. I laugh really loudly at my jokes so that she lets me make more jokes in the show later. Look, um, yeah, no, it's not that funny. But it does make the broader point that before we came to the last election, we were all predicting a Labor win based on the polls. And we were all, well, this is kind of a mere culpa event. We were terribly wrong and we that was a waste here, of your and money. and we told you the wrong thing. That was a waste of their money. We spent for an hour talking about the wrong thing. So if you really would like to have your money back, yes. speak to someone out there. Who's they should have got know. a refund. So, yeah, we got all of that wrong. Um, it wasn't entirely our fault. In fact, I entirely blame other people for every <laughs> wrong thing I say. And when I say really clever things, they are all my original oh, idea. Oh, so true. But let's face it, it the like polls... the economy, like all the good things that happen, it's because of me and all of the other things. It's international factors. <laughs> That's it. But actually, the polls did get it wrong. They did. And maybe, I don't think we want to spend too long looking in the rear vision mirror. But I think there are some always lessons from history. So let's just spend a moment talking about what happened, what went so wrong there for Labor, because I can tell you they're still traumatised and by that loss, and you might see it on their faces at times through this campaign, but there are, it's certainly having some impact in this campaign, isn't it? The bubble's burst. The bubble's it's burst. Turn anymore. it off. Should we sit down and have yeah, a Yeah, the bubble burst. It's not even happening anymore. Because Scott Morrison's bubble kind of was sky high, really. It was? He won, he won the so-called unwinnable election, the miracle election on the back of quiet Australians who he's still trying to cultivate, but seem a little more noisy now. Well, I will refuse to call anyone a quiet Australian, but yes, 
He did. He won. And if we want to just talk for a moment about that, Labor spent a long time reviewing themselves and came up with the three things that everybody knew. The polls were wrong. Uh, the, punters, the voters didn't like Bill Shorten. Um, Labor was spending way too much money, which meant they had to raise taxes, and that was just fodder for a, a scare campaign, to be honest. Um, and that has really had a major impact on where we sit today at um, day 22 of this election campaign, PK, because Labor, there's an old adage in war, which is generals too often fight the last war. It's not a great strategy, tactic strategy, I'm never quite sure. No, not a great strategy. Um, and, you know, I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit tonight when we're joined by some fabulous guests. Amy Ramikas and Karen Middleton will be joining us. <laughs> about the impact of that on, on Labor's campaign today. But it's pretty clear to see, isn't it? I think that what we're seeing now is Labor so paranoid about the last loss that they're overcorrecting, and that's my view. They have overcorrected for their mistakes, genuine mistakes, making an agenda so heavy and full of change was obviously a thing people considered quite risky at the time, so people didn't vote for that change, and they endorsed Scott Morrison, who at that point was cultivating Daggy Dad that makes a lovely curry. By the way, the other day, I saw one of his pictures of his curries. This is before the weird chicken that wasn't cooked properly. <laughs> this is one of the good curries, and I sent a picture to my partner of the curry, and I said, I know this is weird, but I wish you'd make curries like Scott Morrison. <laughs> and she was like, Oh my God, I think I can do that. And now she's making Scott Morrison's curries. Anyway. Really? Like, has he got a cookbook out or something? Well, no, but he will if he loses the election, oh, I suspect. Yes. Is that Almost quite Australians will be buying that. But either way, he won um, the election. And really, you know, uh, uh, whatever you think of Scott Morrison, that was his win. He ran that campaign. It was a presidential campaign. He ran it on his own. He was impressive and he won a majority. A bare majority, but a majority. The bubble has burst, though, back to my gag, that I really am going to labour all night. And I'm still not laughing. It's okay. a, it, well, they actually did. There may be about 30% of, of them, but that is a good number. Um, if you chuckle. look at undecided voters, it's about equivalent. Um, so, Fran, the bubble has burst because for his three years in government, um, I think he only really had one good one, right? The year where he kind of rolled out the JobKeeper and looked like he was pretty... Yeah, but that was a terrible year, Pico. That was a pandemic. But his management of it was he was regarded like he'd really got it together that year. But the year before, the bushfires, and the year since, he's been riddled with troubles. Women, women have been a big issue, and let's watch what happens there. But really, the bubble has burst for Scott Morrison, giving Labor the best chance they've had for a very long time to win this election, and they've gone in with a very small target. Well, they have, because they saw what happened last time, and bugger if they're going to make that mistake again, basically. And so, you know, I, I don't like the term small target. I, I think there are some significant policies that Anthony Albanese has rolled out over the three years, but they don't amount to a major story. And certainly, you know, I mean, he had a good, made pretty good fist of it, I think, at the at the Labor campaign launch yesterday of stringing together a Labor narrative um, between these things of aged care policy, um, childcare policy, um, more money for Medicare, more money for house, social housing and, and housing for low-income Australians, more, you know, wage equity for women. So he, he strung those together. Um, but the, it's really cautious. And... 
you can see that caution at play as soon as the government announces a policy as it did today, which is to increase. They go, me too. Yeah, he goes, me too, because we're not going to let a good idea go without embracing it for all Australia. So he uses the, the, the language of inclusion, but really it's so there's not a sort of a, a cigarette paper between them on some of these cost of living issues in particular. To me, there's a bit of veep about it, continuity with change, <laughs> right? Like, a lot of it is we don't want to change too much because they don't sense that they, they you know, what has Albanese said a few times? People don't want a revolution, but we want a bit of change. What's going to be interesting in three weeks? Because we're at the halfway mark. I'm so wrapped. Um, really, I feel like this is a really important moment for me. The last three weeks have been a slog. But in the last three weeks, as people make their minds up, it'll be interesting to see whether that... You don't call it a small target. I think it has been. Yes, there are policy differences, but then it is not a big agenda. Compared to Scott Morrison's last election, it's a huge agenda. <laughs> I mean, I say that quite... Tr he had a tax policy that was already passed by and large, and attacking electric vehicles. <laughs> Perhaps you're right. I don't think it's a big agenda, though, no. for Labor. No, it's think true. about 2007, the last time Labor won from opposition, uh, and I covered that election campaign on the campaign trail intensely. That was uh, a lot of me too, because remember Kevin Rudd, he wanted to be the fiscal conservative that was a little John Howard, so he didn't freak people out on money. This wasteful spending must stop. But there was big agenda items, yeah. you know, NBN, like big changes. The toolkit of the 21st Kyoto, century. Apologising to the stolen generations, True. big ideas. So Fran, let's just, okay, so that's the three years, and I know you've all lived it. It's been chaotic, it's been hard, it's been... Uh, it's been a challenge for whomever was in government. I mean, we had the fires, we've had the pandemic, we've had the floods. These are challenging. These are big challenges for whoever's in government. Yeah, anyone who was in government would have had a hard time. There's yeah. no doubt about it. And that's what the Prime Minister hopes will happen, that people will give him a go on the basis that, you know, he hasn't had. And I went up to Gladstone for insiders, and a lot of people were saying it actually to me. You know, he hasn't had an easy time, the Prime Minister. There is a sense of sympathy around he's managed a difficult situation. But I want us to zoom three weeks out into a bit of a conversation, if we can, Fran, something mm -hmm. we prepared a little earlier, mm -hmm. on key moments of the last three weeks so far, halfway through, and we have had some, and the moments you think that have kind of defined or changed the conversation. What's been a standout for you? All right, look, I know some of you might be unhappy about this. Some of you might not want to hear this again, but it's impossible... I know. Mm. <laughs> what could you possibly be it's about It's impossible to, talk about? to go past day one. Mm. And, you know, Anthony Albanese really, really did make a significant boo-boo. Let's just... This is a podcast... So we're all about the audio here. Let's hear it in full. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Uh, sorry, I, I'm not sure what it is. It's really awkward when you hear hard it again. It's hard to hear every single it's time. It's hard to hear. And, but he did say it, and it was a really bad mistake. Not because somebody had a brain fade on the first day as trying to win an election campaign. I mean, that can happen. But this is such a critical number. It had been the focus of the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg's boasting, really, since before the budget and through the budget and the weeks up to the election. And Anthony Albanese got it wrong. And what did that do? It just played straight into Scott Morrison's narrative from the kickstart of this campaign which is he's an L-plate leader. He doesn't know how to manage the economy. I've run eight 
budgets, he's had none, and you can't risk Anthony Albanese and Labor with the economy. So that's why that was such a significant moment for this. In I saw it as, so the Scott, Scott Morrison starts the election campaign on the back foot, right? Um, think about what had happened before the election. It's worth remembering. He had the guy who tried to win the seat, um, uh, you know, his rival say that essentially he made allegations that he used a racist smear campaign against him. Uh, there were women in the party like Conchetta Fioravanti Wells. Who stood on budget night saying he is a man without any without a moral compass, not, not fit, to fit be for office. Minister. This was ugly stuff. In my career, and I've been covering politics for over 20 years, I have not seen such an ugly period before an election is called. Uh, called. And then all of a sudden, the election starts, boom. And, and it's like everything first, resets. Everything resets. It all starts. And then the opposition leader goes and buys the best gift for the Prime Minister and says, here, I've wrapped it for you. Mm. It's so you can kick me mm. every day. And Which you can use doing. it in your ads too. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't even have to spend much money on them. And cleverly, the Prime Minister didn't use it really for the day or two, but boy, are they still using it now. You know, they get it in. And if, has anyone noticed how many statistics Scott Morrison rolls off oh. at every possible opportunity about anything? Just to sort of click Really random statistics that we don't actually need no. him to know. No, but um, gee, he's good at He has actually them. fumbled a few himself though, Fran, in his show offery. He sometimes. did. He got one wrong just the other day. What happens when you show off too much? You can why get I can't remember any other figure about... I know the 4%, though. I know. The, we all know the 4%, let's face it. And just letting you know a question, we're going to do a little snap quiz for Amy and Karen later, and they don't know. So. No telling, no shouting out the answer, there's, OK? There's, there's no way so they PK, know now. So, PK, that's my, that's my sort of obvious moment. Do you have an obvious moment of significance in this first three weeks? I do. And for me, it was... The debate. Put your hand up if you got to see the whole debate. Mm, not a lot of sky. That's telling. <laughs> okay. Put your hand up if you got to see the highlights in the news of the debate. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Okay. And that's good because that's the role of journalists, to bring you the highlights. So the debate happened on Sky News. Obviously, it's, uh, it's pay TV, so a lot of people didn't get to see it. Also very early on in the campaign. Lots of good things in this debate. Ordinary voters asking questions of the leaders. I think this is a great thing. It should be, for instance, on the ABC that ordinary voters get to ask questions. Good concept. Bit of a pity that mainstream Australia doesn't have access to it. But either way, it goes on, it happens. And there were a few moments in that debate which I think are noteworthy, but the one that stood out to me is when, and you'll recall if you saw the highlights and you didn't see the whole debate, a woman whose son is on the autism spectrum asked a question about her NDIS funding for her child that's been cut, right? Anyone who's interacted with the NDIS knows, like anyone who's interacted with the welfare system, I grew up on welfare, it's a lot of, a lot of paperwork that we're still traumatised as a family over. Really difficult. So anyone knows that it's a difficult system to navigate. This woman talks about her difficulty and wants help from the Prime Minister, asks a question in relation to that difficulty. I'm making the point and labouring it for a reason. And then he says this. Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that don't, haven't had to go through that. And so for parents with children who are disabled, I can only try and understand. So blessed, obviously a really, really offensive word. Anyone knows that. And so much so that by the time Dylan Alcott, Australian of the Year, who Another Australian of the Year is not a fan of the Prime Minister's bit of a theme. He has trouble with Australians of the Year. Yeah, it's, it's like a disconnect. Yeah, what Australians is that? Of the year, yeah. 
Dylan Alcott tweets and sort of says, I'm, you know, every day my parents are proud of me and, and it's a pretty stinging tweet. I read it and I was yeah, like, mic was. drop. Uh, Dylan Alcott wins the round. Yeah. Uh, and, but really, the Prime Minister, it was tone deaf. What I am most noticing about that answer, though, was that it wasn't an answer to her question. We don't care if he, if he thinks it's really difficult to have a child with a disability or if he feels blessed. I mean, I, I, I don't... Anyone who, who has a child who has a disability feels blessed to have that child. We know that. But the question was about the system, and he controls the system, and he didn't deal substantively with the issue around the system, and he talked about the actual... Uh, disability itself, which is irrelevant. No, Her issue is navigating a hard system. Her issue isn't, gee, why hasn't my child, why has my child got autism? Uh, that's autism true, primary? that's true. And he said when he apologised, he was, you know, trying try to display empathy. Um, <laughs> those courses are really good, aren't they? But, um, Nikki Sava came on our podcast, and if you are listeners to our podcast, I think she said that, didn't she, yeah. Fran? She was like, maybe you should enrol into one of those courses. But look, I'm sure that was what he was trying to do, but it was tone deaf. And then, as you say, there was no recognition of the heart of the question, which is that people are getting their NDIS allowances reviewed because the government's brought in these reviews, which there was great resistance to, and a lot of them are getting thrown off it. Then so that's a problem. And personally, sitting on the couch watching that debate, I was then offended that the Prime Minister said, I'll talk to you afterwards about your situation. Like, well, so one person who happens to be in the Sky News debate gets to ask a question and get their case looked at by the Prime Minister, but that hardly addresses the problem overall. So again, that personally offended me, but not a good moment, PK. There, those were two clunkers. There's been some other significant issues really insert themselves Ambush, really, this campaign, though, since, haven't they? Yeah, if you think about this campaign, what I find really interesting about it, I actually think it's fascinating to see what the outcome will be because the two big issues playing out, and we'll discuss it with our guests, are cost of living in the economy, and tomorrow we might have an interest rate rise. The RBA might lift rates tomorrow. It's looking that way. Uh, and, and that's going to happen smack bang in the middle of an election campaign. That hasn't happened since 2007. Big deal, particularly for families struggling to meet their, their you know, rising costs of living. And then this deal between China and the Solomon Islands. But if you think about why I think these things are very important, they're both on the coalition's traditional strong areas, national security and the economy, and yet both are going pear-shaped for them. And how is that going to end? It's like a drama. Like, they're, they're favourite topics. Like, they wait for these topics. I, I know this. Do you know this, Fran? They're like, please let us talk about the economy. Like, please let us talk about defence. And then it happens, but it's actually blowing up on them. Well, is it? See, it's, well, funny, it? it's a funny thing about political parties because they do get really excited when it's on their turf. If Labor can be talking hospitals or, or health, they're loving it. They're all over it. And as PK said, national security, the economy, coalition thinks that's their turf. Still, even with it blowing up on them, you would think, these sort of stink bombs landing in the middle of this campaign, they're still privately saying, as long as we're talking about the economy, it's good for us, you know? As long as we're talking about... And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a political strategist. We will find out in 19 days' time whether that is true. But the interesting thing about this is that Labor and as we've seen so often, has not shirked 
these. They've not tried to run away from these issues this time. They've run straight into them. Penny Wong, when the Solomons deal with China was announced, Penny Wong came right out and said this is the worst foreign policy disaster in the Pacific by an Australian government since the World War II. So she leapt right into that fire, knowing that, you know, there is a residual weakness or psychological kind of impression somehow in the Australian electorate, so we're bred to believe that Labor isn't as strong on national security. And that certainly had been a meme that Scott Morrison had been trying to get going for weeks with little success. But um, there's something either in their instincts or their polling, PK, that is telling them actually they don't have to run from this one because it's all about this happened on your watch. If people, if the polls are telling Labor that people are sick of Scott, po Scott Morrison, they don't like Scott Morrison, they've had it, well then Labor's leaning into this happened on his watch, this happened under him, they've been in 10 years and this is happening. Things are going really bad. So it'll be interesting to see in the, at the end of the day when, as Paul Keating likes to say, and that's my favourite saying, when people go into the polling booth with their stubby little pencils, whether they trust national security or they trust the economy in difficult global times with Labor. It's exactly right. So will it actually favour the coalition or will Labor actually be able to get some really important gains here. I actually think that one of the mistakes we make is always looking at the past. We have to look at some lessons from the past, don't get me wrong, but not understanding that the electorate's changing, that things change, generational change. When we talk about cost of living, and we're going to talk about that a bit later, there is a housing crisis in this country. Young people feel very disenfranchised, and we don't factor that enough in to the debate. So we think, oh, the economy, that always favours them. Well, not if you know, your mortgage is staggeringly high. You go to the grocery store. I went the other day, bought four items, and I had to actually call my partner and say, I don't, how do you do this? She does most of the shopping. She was like, you yeah, know, it's really bad, isn't it? And I said, should we not eat vegetables anymore? <laughs> like, the kids don't like them that much anyway. Don't go for lamb chops, that's the thing. No, no, um, yeah, there's the things chops. you have to. I'm getting very, my favourite show was Roseanne. Who loves Roseanne? What a great show. <laughs> anyway, I want to make, like, meatloaf and stuff now. I'm like, let's make meatloaf. Um, the, 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 the world is getting very expensive. Tomorrow, if interest rates go up, back in your stubby little pen, if you're thinking, he keeps telling us that unemployment is at record lows and we've got it good, and these payments, this help that they've given is short term, maybe people will be in a punishing mood. Maybe they will, but maybe too. I, I do think there's a very high chance of this, that if they raise rates tomorrow, the Reserve Bank Governor will make a statement and it will probably signal there'll be a series of rates to come, like they'll flag that if they're about to do it. Therefore, Will people think, hmm, there's going to be quite a few more of these, this is going to be ugly, do I want that guy who we don't know very well, do we trust him with the economy, or do we stay with the guy who, you know, gave us JobKeeper and got us through the pandemic? I don't know. How would I know? But that's my instinct. <laughs> How would she know? She's only the co-host of a very important political podcast. <laughs> you paid tickets to come to see. How would she know? Look, I want to say oh, one... They'll be asking for their money back again. In <laughs> no, I know. We've really oversold that joke too. I just want to say on this guy, and she just described she being Frank Kelly, um, this guy, Anthony Albanese, being unknown. One of the biggest critiques I'm currently getting on air is when I describe Anthony Albanese being unknown to the electorate. So I would like to address this with you if you sent me any of these nasty texts. <laughs> you have, haven't you? <laughs> Don't do that anymore. So what, 
I just want to say, I am aware that Anthony Albanese, as you are, has been in Parliament for longer than Scott Morrison. 26 years. I am aware because I've known him most of that time. I know he's been a minister in the Rudd-Gillard governments, a very senior man who knows a lot. The analysis we provide is based on where do average Australians sit, right? We know we know him, but I still think that that doesn't mean everyone else knows you. Most people cannot identify front bench. And that is the issue that I think Anthony Albanese still has. Yes, he might be well known to the political class, but is he well known to average Australians yet? I don't think he is. I think no, they I don't think he is, and that's why they're bringing out Penny Wong, and that's why they're bringing out Kevin Rudd in a lot of marginal seats around town. That's why Tanya Plibersek is going to marginal seats all over the country. You know, I think Anthony Albanese does understand this. Yes, and the idea that it's, it's uh, unfair to him to say this, I think, is unfair. Yeah. I think it's true. Look, there's one man who likes a selfie more than me, and that is Kevin Rudd. There's a woman who likes a selfie more than me as well, or at least on par. She's one of our next guests. Should we bring, bring our guests in? Let's do it. <laughs> They brought out their wines. We brought the party to the party yeah, room. going to be... Now, just, just PK, ladies. Just, PK, before we get going, I, th I forgot a vital instruction for the audience. It's about questions. Oh, vital. Vital. So we're, vital. We're going to ask these, these two fabulous guests questions, but a little later, we will have question time. If you're a listener of the podcast, we do have question time, and we will have question time from you, the audience, a little later. There is a few rules, which is basically, if you're in the high stalls up there, I'm really sorry, but because of COVID, we can't get mics up there. We've only got two down here. So the, question, the questioners can only come from the downstairs. So keep thinking a little, I know, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Um, Downstairs, over. upstairs. Thing. I'll send you my mobile number and you can call me as I'm walking home. <laughs> I'll just answer your questions. Oh, and you know what? She will. Like, <laughs> she will. It's anyway, anyway, that's for a little later. I just wanted you to have, you, have it in mind in case there's something that strikes you and you want to save that up for later. I digress. <laughs> Amy, Karen, hello. 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 Hi. In fact, I'm moving hello. my chair so we can see a little more of you. Oh. Well, I Unlike can. the insider's coffee, I do intend on drinking. <laughs> Now, we've got a little party game for our guests, don't we? Yep. Because it's not good to have a party without a party game. No. I know, because I've organised some really lame children's parties that um, have gone down very badly with the children. So I know this. And so this is how this game's going to work. Um, we're both going to ask you, both of you questions. The first person to uh, make, will help them out with the sound. It's kind of like a... idea the sound. It's kind of like a fastest finger first situation. That's it. Okay? It's like... Okay. Zzz, but you make a different... Okay. Right, leave it to me, Peke. Amy, <laughs> Amy, if you know the answer, you're going to go... Hoot, and hoot. That's it. That's Got very it. good. Karen, if you know the answer, you're going to go very loudly... Beep. Beep. Very good. Okay. And if there's Let's any... Just practice the sounds. If I went to uni for this. Yeah. Practice. <laughs> Those hex fees can't wait. Beep. Okay. Okay. And All I right. hope we don't have to get the audience into adjudicate if there's an overlap, okay? Yeah. PK, take it away. Yeah. Um, I did a game show as a child and I won, so... Um. All right. Double dare. I won the Iron Man game. Um, okay. 
You're both in Canberra. Actually, it's for both of you. Why am I looking only at you? <laughs> um, okay, so could you tell me the price of a loaf of cracked rice sourdough from Three Mills Bakery? <laughs> wait, 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 there's more. The extra large sliced loaf specifically, please. Extra large. I'm going to go with a million dollars. Oh, wrong. I'm going to say that I, I, I may have noticed that the ancient grains three meals sourdough is $11. Yeah, but that wasn't the question. Could you please answer my question? <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to take you back to the question. I, I would say more than $11, maybe twelve fifty. Close. Mm. I'm a celiac. This is very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, PK, help them out. All right, pretty close. That kind of goes to Karen-ish, I think, because it's thirteen dollars and ninety cents. I tell you what, it goes sure, to. Canberra is not the average town. That's what it goes to. <laughs> no, Stuart Robert talked to me about his baguettes on radio one day. Yeah, I know he had that. No already, one wants didn't that. He? I'm still, I'm still recovering from the baguette yeah, conversation. Okay. I, I, like, my family comes from Stuart Roberts' uh, electorate, and it is not a baguette electorate. Right. Let's okay, in, enough with the bread. Enough with the bread. Okay, we're going to go to a tried and true one now. This is an absolute classic, thanks to Anthony Albanese. What's the current employment rate? Whoop. Beep. 4%. Yes. Oh, I was going to say 5.4. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's the I don't know that got me to it. Was... I don't know. Oh, God, don't admit it. All right. Another one for you. Um, we'll take this up a notch. How much more damage to the economy was done during the COVID pandemic than the GFC? Brackets, and the brackets are important here, according to Scott Morrison. Yep. Uh, more than 30 times worse than the GFC. Very good listening, Amy. Thank you. Okay. It's almost like you do a blog. Where you... I almost have to listen to that bullshit and fact-check it a lot. <laughs> fact-checking. There's been so much fact-checking going on here. Okay, the last one. How much rent assistance does the federal government pay annually? Oh, come on. Okay, that's the gotcha. That is the gotcha. Well, you're obviously Annually. not fit you're to be journalist. You're obviously not, no, not fit to be journalist. How many times has the Prime Minister been asked, what are you going to do to help renters? And his answer is, we pay $5 billion every year in rental assistance. Oh. Okay. But I mean, like, it only works out to like an extra dollar a week, <laughs> so I'm not sure how good his maths is. There. And it's very hard to get. <laughs> and, and people should just go buy houses. Yeah, exactly. If you can't afford rent, go buy a house. I don't know why you're house. worrying yourself renting. <laughs> When you could get your own $1.5 million house. Yeah, exactly. All right, enough with the jokes. Come on, let's get on with it. <laughs> if only it was a joke. Serious now. <laughs> All right. So we are going to spend some time talking about some of the other issues that have dominated in the election, uh, kind of zooming out from where we started on our own in our own little private party. We've widened our party now. Um, the economic issues. We ended talking, um, Karen, and you probably were sneakily listening, I'm suspecting, although you were having the wine, so who knows. But, but on the economy, this idea that this always favours the coalition, but Labor's getting right into that debate. They, you know, they're in the mud on this. Do you think they can flip the script? I don't know. It's an interesting question. I suppose they're making the point that it's the guys that have, and girls that have presided over the problem that are now saying, leave it with us and we'll fix it up. And maybe there is some sting in that 
in that argument, or in the in the reverse of that argument, which is, hang on a minute, that's not really logical, and that's that's what they're trying to do. And they make the point that they did manage the global the global financial crisis. There was a uh, there were criticisms of the level of stimulus, just like they've been this time around. But apparently, this time around, it doesn't matter. Whereas last time around, it did. So you know, th- there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on in all the argument here. But it is um, it's it's just sort of accepted wisdom for some reason mm. that coalition governments are always better, and they've they get way is making the point that oh, we, we save the money and they spend the money. But I think Labor's also using a different kind of argument, which is we would be a caring government. We would care how much you get, how much you earn, how much you get in welfare, how much support you get from the government. It'll be interesting to see whether that also carries some sway with voters. We have seen, Amy, the cost of living intrude in some pretty brutal ways politically in this campaign. I mean, we've had um, record inflation. That's the cost of everything. Then we've had the news that our power bills are going to go up in New South Wales and Queensland quite significantly. And perhaps tomorrow we're going to get interest rates going up. What's your instinct, your view, on who this helps or hurts the most, the impact of this on this campaign? Again, as Karen said, it's really interesting because obviously it's hurting everyone right now, the cost of living is hurting everyone. And then you ask them who's to blame and no one's to blame for this other than outside pressures. And that message I think is getting through rightly or wrongly. There's a lot of people who go, oh, well, this is happening in Ukraine and this is a little bit difficult. To which my answer, mostly to my dad, is um, (laughs) this is a government that has been in power for nine years. It, it's not, my, my father keeps talking about re-electing Scott Morrison for a second term. It's not, it's a fourth term. So all of the issues that my father talks about have been, happened under the coalition. And so when they talk about all outside pressures, it completely ignores what has happened within the Australian economy. We know that the economy was suffering before the pandemic. We know that. We know that people were suffering before the pandemic. We know that electricity prices were an issue before Ukraine. We know that oil prices were an issue before Ukraine. We know that because Angus Taylor went out and said, I've spent $94 million on a strategic oil reserve, which I'm keeping in the United States just for when we need it. Like We've known all of these pressures are coming. And now that they've hit, and we knew that they were always going to hit, the coalition is working very, very, very hard to make sure that everyone knows that it's not their fault. But as Karen says, they're the only one who can fix it. But there is a bit of a tale of two economies, as Josh Frydenberg keeps reminding us. I mean, we all know the unemployment rate is 4%. That is an historically low unemployment rate. Yeah, but does it really reflect the state of employment? I mean, it doesn't reflect underemployment. I mean, right? How many people would like more work and can't get it? I mean, that is a dodgy unemployment rate, in my view. Yeah. It, it doesn't reflect the level of pressure people are under and how much more work they would like and how much more money they would like to earn. And the work that the Anti-Poverty Centre have been doing has shown that for every entry-level job, there is 23 applicants for it. So it is completely uneven. Yes, there might be low unemployment when we're talking about skilled work, but when we're talking about unskilled and the long-term unemployment, nothing has moved. And that's, Pico, I'll let you get a word in a minute, but I'm just going to take the oh, way here because there was I'm a... I'm enjoying the show. I'm also a little sleepy. Because... <laughs> 
there was a study. Uh, we get so we'll be talking interest rates all week, if the, especially if the bank moves tomorrow, or depending on what they signal tomorrow. Um, but as you've both sort of hinted at, the 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 housing story is also a story about rental affordability for many many hundreds of thousands of Australians. And this week we got a, a shocking. Last week, we got a shocking study from Anglicare. It was their rental affordability study. Just 1.6% of private rentals are affordable for people working full-time on the minimum wage. And affordable is judged at your rent taking 30% of your income. I mean, that if you look at those on some kind of support pension, the, the, the statistic is just shocking. It's 0.1%. I mean, this is a frightening statistic. It means... Millions of Australians are really struggling with their rent, and yet when both sides have been asked about that, the Prime Minister gave us, gives us the $5 billion figure, which I'm surprised neither of you got. Um, Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> right, Fran, but really, Fran's no one, campaign for Prime Minister begins. You know, no one, I think, is grappling, and it's, it's partly because of what PK and I were speaking about earlier, which is, you know, Labor doesn't want to overspend. It doesn't want to be accused of having these giant big big spending policies. So they did a little bit yesterday on helping um, people, perhaps some older women particularly, but others get into the market through a shared equity scheme. It's really a small number of people. And their rental offering is, um, I forget the figure, my bad, but um, in terms of Labor's offering on affordable housing and social housing, they have well, she was going to ask me for a second. I was thinking, <laughs> but it's not going to fix that problem at all. There needs to be a major priority decision here from an Australian government. And there's not. No one's going close to it. Nobody wants big architecture at this point because they're terrified if they build the big architecture before the election, the other lot will rip it down. Yep. So either that or they'll, they'll build the same thing. So, and you won't get any bang for your buck. So they're, they're all avoiding it. It's all about small ideas that make you feel like they're doing something. And there's, it's also about, and I think this is the case for Labor, it's about, you know, winning and then building a case for some changes, right? From government, they believe that they'll able, they're able to do that. What the coalition will do, though, is build a sense of distrust around that. What do they want to sneakily do? You know, yeah. why aren't they telling us, right, Amy? Like I'm... no cuts to the pension, ABC or SBS <laughs> under a government I lead. But yeah, ab absolutely. Um, you're 100% correct on that. But I also think what gets missed in this debate is something that economist Saul Eslake has mentioned quite a few times in that there are 11 million people in Australia who own property and don't want to see that property decrease in price. Correct. Because that is their retirement plans, that is their equity, that is their wealth. And when we talk about Australia being a wealthy country, we mean property equity. We don't mean bank accounts. When you look at most households, your bank accounts probably in the four figures if you're lucky, but your home probably has a couple of hundred thousand dollars of equity in it. And that's what you think of when you think of wealth. And so no political party wants to say to that 11 million people who decide elections, we're going to make your homes cost a little bit less to help the next generation through. Uh, are you going to be cool with that? Yeah. Well, hang on a minute, because they tried it. Well, and were you cool with that? No. <laughs> people were not cool with that. Um, and, and, but there are ways to do it, right? Yes, where you can kind of, you know, talk about the fifth property that's negatively geared yeah. rather than... Yeah, yeah there are. And the reason they the excesses. Didn't do it was they wanted all that money coming in from the, the taxes. Karen? 
Well, if they could increase supply for a start and then they could do a little bit more on social housing, which would at least help the people at the bottom who are having trouble accessing the market. So there are levers that can be pulled that are not necessarily being pulled well enough yet. I would like to hold the talking stick and to raise a new topic, but definitely linked, and that is the topic of scare campaigns. <laughs> There's a couple running in this election and I just want to see what you make of them. I want to start with the Labor ones, the ones that Labor is prosecuting against the coalition is what I mean. Uh, there appears to be, particularly on the ground in Gladstone, I noticed quite a bit of it, you know, they're going to take your Medicare kind of, that's, that was the vibe, a Medi-scare campaign going on. There's also the welfare, um, the welfare, welfare, welfare pension, all pensioners being put on it. Which is not true. No. It's not true. No. But when you quiz Labor on it, as have I, and they will say, hang on a minute, they have raised it before and they, that, that gives them, they argue, the right to prosecute this. What's your take on that? Oh, look, I think it's a bit disingenuous. Uh, I, I think they got a bit burnt last time around on the old death tax thing and the negative... A gearing. bit burnt. Yeah. <laughs> so burnt that they lost the election. Um, so they are doing much the same thing, not, not as... Uh, subterranean, not as subterranean a way, uh, but doing it more openly. But they're, but they're justifying it on the basis that, well, you've headed in this direction before, you've left it open, you haven't ruled it out up until now, so it might happen. And they're just hoping that enough people will think, oh, well, it might happen. So. And on Medicare, sure, there have been some cuts to Medicare, and but... Yeah, well, there, has there? That's a bit like the economy yeah. and the national security thing that Labor is seen as the party of Medicare and it's always successfully prosecuted that argument. So that's in the same sort of category. So is it fair, about things. right? Is it fair to say that these scare campaigns are, un are dishonest from Labor at the moment? I think they're bankrupt. I think all scare campaigns are dishonest. Yeah. Uh, and... All scare campaigns seem to work most successfully when there is a tiny, itty-bitty rice grain of truth to them. One line is all it takes for a political party to take a scare campaign and just go with it. So with Medi-Scare, I believe it was a story by Andrew Proben, who was then working for the West Australian... It was, yeah. ..about um, they were going to privatise the back end of who the did system. the payments for Medicare, and that's all it took for Labor to say they're privatising Medicare. I mean, out of context but they were able to say, well, this is what they're doing. Who knows what else they'll do? And that's what they're doing with the cashless debit card. Uh, they're saying Anne Rushton, who it would be an incoming health minister under the Morrison government if it was re-elected, has said, we want to expand the card. Could that include age pensioners? Mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially <laughs> what, they, what they're saying. And Would it include Casper the ghost? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not for me to say. I'm well, just saying. That's... If they do that, well, look at what they've said. And then on the, on the flip side, you yeah. have the, the Liberal Party just saying, like, you know, oh... Sneaky carbon Turn back tax. the boats. Yes. Turn back the boats, which there's no intelligence. It not, I don't think anyone has actually even thought about it since that statue showed up in a photo in Scott Morrison's office. <laughs> uh, and then you've got the sneaky carbon tax, which is the government's own policy. But what, but what I don't get is, it's obvious the same, okay, that these, the same policy. But these things are not true. They're, they're, they're grabbing, you know, they're making it up, but they must 
believe that it works to some degree. And that's what the strategists will tell you, that we're more motivated by fear than we are by positive ideas. So why? Why does it work? Why does it work when it's not true? A substantial portion of the voting population, if we believe the opinion polls, do we believe the opinion polls, haven't made up their minds yet. So they're looking for something that will flip them one way or the other. And if they're scared enough about something that might affect them directly or that they think might affect the country, then maybe that's the thing that makes the difference to some people. I don't know. And the vast majority of people, and I know you, you spoke about this at the beginning, don't actually pay attention to politics. They have lives. You know, like they don't, they, they're not paying attention. What are you saying? Uh, you know, tragic. No, what I'm She's saying, saying I'm tragic. myself in that too, so it's fine. But like they, they only get little bits and pieces. And don't you laugh, you paid money to come here. <laughs> <laughs> they only get pick up little bits and pieces and they're increasingly picking up those bits and pieces from social media, yeah. like Facebook, which is just a picture, a very scary picture, and somebody saying, we won't let this happen to you. And that's where they're getting their information. I was speaking to someone the other day who thought the election had already happened and Scott Morrison won. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you laugh, but like this, like a lot of people don't actually follow the news. He as does intently. act like he's won. I, well, I mean, he does, to be fair. But And so that, that's why scare campaigns can work. It's like the death tax that you raised earlier. There was nothing except for maybe the Greens said, like, wouldn't it be great if we had a death tax again? And they were like, Labor and the Greens are going to give you a death, death tax. And off it went. Something that has changed since the last election, though, is that the um, large company that publishes Facebook and Instagram now publishes their um, political advertising, who's buying ads, what the ads look like, where they're being shown and how much is being spent. So you can see it now, which you couldn't before. You couldn't yeah. see it. So that was all targeted to particular demographics. So it was all happening under the surface. That death tax scare got away from Labor. They got onto it too late. Yeah. Yeah, but now you can you can look in into the Facebook archive and you can see who's spending what money. It's quite interesting. What what um and what is going on? So who's doing that? Well, they've been to looking me <laughs> and Karen. What are you seeing? Well, the, through all through the um, tail end of last year and early this year, the major parties were test driving a whole lot of images and colours and fonts and you saw Scott Morrison looking stern, Scott Morrison smiling, Scott Morrison in a blue tie, Scott Morrison in a dark blue tie, uh, you know, looking left, looking right, um, with women, without women. With these none of it worked. Worked. Um, and a lot of, now there's a lot of Liberal Party ads with anti um, Anthony Albanese and likewise the Labor Party are running a lot of Scott Morrison ads because they think he's their best weapon. So they test drive all of these things and they uh, work out what works and now some of the images that have been in those Facebook ads are appearing in television ads. The, the Anthony Albanese weather vane swinging around that, that's now on your TV, that's been in Facebook ads for months and they've tested it in all kinds of different states with all kinds of messages and they've worked out which ones are working. Okay. So none of it's an accident. They're, they're doing it's it, but at least we can science. see it now. I think we should move on because there's a really big element of this campaign that I know a lot of people are very interested in, and that's this group we're calling the Teal Independents. Mm. The Teal Independents are the ones running uh, against, as it happens, in Liberal seats because many of them probably, I think, self-identify themselves as small L Liberals, you know, perhaps economic, economically more conservative but socially more progressive, running in inner city, leafy suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney in particular. And what do they have in common? What do they have in common? Simon Holmes Accord. I was going to say they all Vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? 
Vaginas. Vaginas. Oh. They're educated women. Good girl, Amy. They are educated <laughs> women um, who are cranky with the system, who have been highly successful in all of their work and have decided to take on powerful institutions and, and power. They do have a... There is a theme to them. Yes, they're funny. Yeah, you're right, of course. The type of people they are. No, you're right. They're successful within their communities too, most of them. And, so well, and they're all, you know, bluish but a bit green. Yes. Hence the teal. Yes, hence the teal. And, and we know that they have, you know, common themes of what they want, which is action on climate change, and they want action on national integrity. Are they fake independents? Amy? Well, it's just... It's such a ridiculous concept that they're running, that they're fake independents. Why? Because they have political beliefs, but they're not aligned to a party. So, I mean... Okay, but they are funded through one central organisation. Partly, partly, because not entirely. And, and with organisational support. And there is... They do talk to each other. They, they say, one of them the other day um, said to me in an interview that it was mainly emotional support, which I totally get because they're under so much pressure. Is there any sense of coordination? Is there anything to the fake independence, whatever that means? I don't think there is because I think that coordination that you're talking about, like the support and how to do this, is something that, you know, Cathy McGowan kind of laid the framework The voices for. of Indi became the voices of a movement yeah. in general. And, and it's, it's a blueprint, if you like, of how you can run a successful independence campaign in seats that have been held by the major parties. And so having that sort of emotional support, that sort of blueprint, and yes, okay, funding, they are getting funding from uh, the, the Climate 200, but then are we going to start picking out all the businesses that fund both the Labor and the Liberal Party and then start applying Well, let's do same? that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, okay, so we, we don't have time to do that, but we do... <laughs> I'm just trying to get this back on track here. <laughs> but we do have time to talk about what's the likelihood of any of them or many of them getting elected. I'm told that Phil Curry in the Fin Review tomorrow has some absolutely bombshell polling on Goldstein, which was one that I thought was lower down the, the chances. Not of if you see Tim Wilson's social media. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd, like, I'd be interested to hear from you too what, you, what you're hearing, what you're thinking. There's the seat of Curtin in WA is coming out really strongly now as, you know, a possibility that was a sort of a bolter, really, and would certainly be a bolter of a result, Julie Bishop's old seat. There are four seats that people are talking about as being at risk for moderate Liberals. Um, Goldstein in, in Victoria, in Melbourne. North Sydney, Trent Zimmerman's seat. Wentworth, Dave Sharma's seat. And the seat of Curtin, Julie Bishop's old seat, held by Celia Hammond in Western Australia. Um, and I think and that's being contested by Kate Cheney, who's the niece of Fred Cheney, who's a former Liberal senator. Whose slogan simply says, vote one Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> so Whatever. I think um, the Goldstein one is, uh, the Liberals are very worried about, about Goldstein. Uh, and then Wentworth probably, and then North Sydney, and then Curtin. But the other impact that these seats have is that these are really good fund fundraising seats for the Liberal Party. Usually they can mm. fundraise a lot of money in these seats that then gets distributed to the seats where they need to run campaigns in marginal seats in that state. Take Curtin, for example. That's, a, that's been a huge fundraising seat under Julie Bishop. 
having to sink all the money into Curtin to save Curtin. So that, that has an impact in itself in the campaigns being run in marginal seats. Yeah. But I think that, you know, some of them are at risk, whether they get their... They're big margins. So They're huge margins, and it's all, uh, you know, as... Um, if you look at something like Kyu Yong, for instance, part of the issue is that the Labor Party and the Greens are running dead in those seats, um, that, that essentially you know, Josh Frydenberg has to get a very high primary to try and retain the seat because the preferences run against him because of those other parties helping the independents. So there is a genuine threat. This is what I want us to contemplate if we can, right? There's two arguments running, and I'm sure because you're such a political crowd, why else would you come? Uh, you would have read the Ted Bailey, Victorian Liberal, you know, ex-premier and, uh, you know, heavyweight moderate in the Liberal Party in Victoria's piece saying, you know, it's, it's terrible, you can't get rid of the moderates, they're such an important part of the party. And then his own son writing a piece, he's of course running the campaign for Josh Frydenberg's rival, saying, no, we're doing this because the party's broken. What's your take on this kind of big internal fight inside of the Liberal Party, which is actually huge and substantial and really, I think, generationally defining for the political party? Uh, I, I would agree, and I think it's something Labor probably went through about 10 years ago when it came to the Greens, but I think that if you have a problem with the moderates in your party, it's because they're not being seen to be uh, as effective as they could be. I mean, the idea that you want to talk scare campaigns, the biggest scare campaign in a lot of those seats is vote Josh, Tim, Dave, you know, Trent, get Barnaby Joyce. Mm. I mean, and, and that's just a fact. So when we talk about, oh, where, you know, you're running against the moderates and therefore you're going to make, you know, the Liberal Party go more to the right, what impact have the moderates had in that party? Group? Which is precisely why they're vulnerable. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a leadership issue, isn't it? Because John Howard understood this very well. He liked to talk about the broad church. He certainly moved the, the Liberal Party uh, party room to do the more conservative side, but he always allowed the moderates in that party room. He put a whack of them in his cabinet. If you think Robert Hill, Amanda Vanstone for two. And he always, they said, gave him a good hearing, gave them a good hearing. He'd, you know, he'd let them talk themselves out so he'd hear their thing. Sometimes he'd, you know, ameliorate policy. He always made them felt that they had a voice. Whereas I think what's happened since is that that has been lost. You can see evidence of the way the factionalism has worked in the Liberal Party if you look at the New South Wales Liberal Party and the stuff we've seen lately about pre-selections. And I think partly that is because uh, the Prime Minister and his political lieutenant, Alex Hawke, are in a kind of middle faction. And that's the we'll pick which side we go with according to what we need <laughs> to do faction. And they play the left and the right off against each other in the Liberal Party. And sometimes the left and the right get together to stop them. So it doesn't do anything to bring the party together to appease, you know, um, either side or to make sure that they get a policy win to keep everyone happy and stable. It's about uh, power games. It's about siding with the right to put down the left or siding with the left to keep the right at bay. And it's left everybody really furious. And that's why we don't have a unified it's, Liberal it's Party. It's also, though, given positions that the moderates then have to defend. So then you have people like Josh Frydenberg talking about Catherine Deves's abhorrent comments and just sort of saying, oh, well, I don't agree with those, but the wider issue about fairness in sport, you know, that's what we should be talking about. And it's, it's ridiculous and it's heartbreaking for every single 
vulnerable youth who has to listen to their leaders talk like that. And increasingly they do because they have to keep their position within the party. So you've got this dichotomy where you've got them saying one thing in the party room where they're saying, I'm fighting for you. But then publicly they come out and they say, oh, well, I'm fighting for you, but also let's give them a fair hearing. And if you want to know why there are so many people challenging sitting Liberal MPs in those inner city moderate seats, it's for exactly that reason. They say they have stood up, but you don't see the evidence of them standing up in the government policy which impacts your lives. So... And there are some exceptions, to be fair. I mean, it was Trent Zimmerman who crossed the floor on trans kids and essentially sunk the Religious Discrimination um, Act. Labor, in fact, voted. Five of them, PK, but they got called traitors by their own side. They did, but they did it. Right, they did it on one part of the bill, which was they did. Good, but Labor not. voted for the bill. Yes, but Labor voted. lefties voted for the bill. But then they ended up voting for the bill too. Like this is what I'm like I'm saying. Look, you know, the, but, but I'm not defending Labor. Is that there is a Don't vote for those bills; it. they're awful. There is a complexity to it. There's no political clean skins in this, and there are some moderates that have flexed their muscle, so to speak, more than others. True, and I know very quickly, because I can see Fran's got the wind-up finger. Um, but <laughs> My job. Yes, I, I'm, when you're, I'm the one with the watch. Yeah, when your argument is keep us in the party because we can change things and you're not substantially changing things, then your argument begins to lose a lot of that shine. Yeah, and, and that's what they're paying the price for, and they know that. And the Catherine, just a little time check here, guys, because we do want to leave some time for, for audience questions, and we've got a few things to get through. But that takes us back to the Catherine Deves, the culture war thing, Karen, which you've written about extensively in the Saturday paper. The fact that um, the Prime Minister would say, well, she's retracted those comments, and I think she should have, but I won't have her silenced, and I'm, you know, sick of, people are sick of walking on eggshells. I mean, what is happening there? here. Trent Zimmerman, Dave Sharma, all these people get asked about this all the time and they can't, you know, as, as Amy says, they, they don't agree with it, but, you know, they, they understand there's an issue of fairness. I mean, what? Well, the Prime Minister is not discouraging those comments because they are connecting with people. They are connecting with people who are worried about women's sport. I mean, there's already a clause in the Sex Discrimination Act that prevents people, allows for discrimination under certain circumstances in terms of if physical strength is a, a relevant issue in a sport. It's already there. So we're actually talking about stuff that is already in the law. And stuff, you? can I say, that's being determined by the science. Yeah, that's Again. right. Again. So I don't know why politicians so can the, tell us. So this is... This is a conversation that the Prime Minister is happy for people to have because it's connecting with that whole idea of don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to think, free speech, and it's sort of a little bit connected with the don't tell me to wear a mask. Don't, so it's know. the UAP freedom message in a sense he's trying to bring I, it I over. I think so. And if you want any further evidence that he's not unhappy that this is prominent, he held his own rally in Western Sydney yesterday to coincide with the Labor rally. And who was in the front row at that rally. Catherine Deves. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but she was whisked outside so she didn't get to answer any questions about anything. But so it's, 
it's a conversation they're happy to have because I think they think it resonates with a lot of people um, beyond just the issue about sport. It, it creates yes. that whole other oh. conversation and maybe they think, and I don't know this, I'm guessing, but maybe they think it's not the issue that will tip things in those inner city seats. It won't help. It's not helping for sure. But it's other issues that will flip those seats if they flip. But it might help them with... Uh, faith-based communities, ethnic communities that are faith-based. The Prime Minister went to an Eid celebration today. You know, he's very conscious of trying to engage a whole lot of... Gave some of the kids bubble things. Of of ethnic communities, as is the Labor Party, because the Labor Party acknowledged after the last election that they didn't do well in faith-based communities. And it's not just Christian communities, it's people of other faiths. So there's a great deal of consciousness in both major parties of how to engage those people. And I think some of this, in terms of perhaps conservative-minded faith-based communities, is about that. There's also a great deal of consciousness, I think, on the conservative side of politics. We've been talking about the teal independence and the moderate seats, but what about one nation. What about UAP? They're running candidates in every single seat. I mean, last time Sometimes around... the same one. <laughs> last time around, Clive Palmer's $80 million spend effectively helped the coalition get it. Effectively sunk Labor, sunk Bill Shorten, because the ads were all anti-Bill Shorten. Now, he's got these big freedom billboards everywhere. It's, it's been damaging the coalition brand. They've been having a red-hot go UAP at the Nats, particularly in the bush. How worried is the government, or how vulnerable is the government on that, on that right flank? I think they're worried, but they don't know how worried they have to be because no one actually knows where those votes are going to land in terms of preferences. Uh, and it's the preferences that really sort of matter with those, vote, with those voters because, I mean, yes, they might vote UAP one or One Nation one, but then where does it go after that? I mean, in Queensland, uh, at least from a state election perspective, a lot of the One Nation votes actually go back to Labor candidates. You just, you can't pick where they're actually going to go. And so you've seen, uh, um, as you've all identified, the coalition try to be all things to all people. We've currently got the Barnaby line in Australia where we don't actually see Barnaby go like south of Newcastle um, because it's not not overly welcome south of Newcastle. Um, And so you've got him trying to, like, rev up, like, you know, rural and regional communities and areas where he's welcomed. And then you've got uh, Scott Morrison starting ridiculous debates about, you know, walking on eggshells and how we're all sick of it. I will say, if you're sick of walking on eggshells, you've never actually felt cracked or vulnerable yourself. And so... um, And then you've got Clive Palmer, who's just kind of saying, oh, I'm running and I hate you all, but also maybe be just uh, do what I want and I'll give you a preference. But the great thing about preferences is that voters control them and parties can talk all they want about how to vote cards uh, and preference flows, but it's really only major party voters who follow the how to vote cards, not not people who vote for the minor parties. They tend to think about where they want to put their vote a little bit more. So I think they're going to be worried, but not overly concerned because in the areas where they're trying to win seats, the coalition's trying to win seats, I don't think that those votes are necessarily as effective as they are in Queensland, where you're pretty much at capacity if you're the coalition. Karen? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the issue is where people preference, where those voters send their preferences afterwards. And a lot of those seats are going to be really tight. Um, Clive Palmer is spending I don't know how much money overall, but it is a lot. You know, I was coming back from 
going back to the airport in Melbourne t- this morning and there were just yellow billboards just blinding. And Why driving, you can't build the Titanic? Yeah, driving, you know, if you drive from Queensland back down to, to Sydney, the same thing. It's just, and that sort of saturation coverage does have an impact. It, mm. does, it does affect people. So it will impact the vote and then where do those preferences go in marginal seats where we could come down to a few hundred votes either mm. way? It will make a difference. Um, PK, can, I think we've just, because we do need to let these two head off and get back to their day jobs, but there's a couple of issues that I'd ask you both to comment on um, briefly. One is, before we get your predictions, because we're not letting you go without them, but one is the youth vote and one is what we're not hearing in this campaign. And, and there's a bit of a crossover there, I think. You know, if we think about the youth vote, there's been a housing, number one issue, also mental health, and we've virtually heard almost, seen no new spending, almost, in this campaign so far. Karen, are they not mindful of the youth vote? We've got more people than ever enrolled to vote this time, haven't we? Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, and there hasn't been much direct conversation about that. And they're, you know, they're, they're interesting voters because, you know, in the last couple of years, you've got people turning 18. Well, we've had two years now. So we've got 18 to 20 year olds who will be voting for the first time, who've, who've uh, come of age, if you like, during COVID, yes. whose year 12 got blown up by COVID, who, if they had travel plans, they got blown up by COVID. They've struggled with mental health. There's kids locked in their bedrooms. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And we're not, well, A, we're not talking about COVID all that much in the election campaign. And we're certainly not talking about these young people. So I don't know how they're going to vote or how significant their vote is going to be in different seats, but it's quite an interesting... I was talking to someone about it the other day who described it as a wild card, you know, because it could be could be interesting to see what those young people do with their vote. A lot of those same young people are the ones who are out climate protesting who were told to go back to school. Mm. So, I, you know, climate change, again, is another issue which we're not hearing a lot about. Uh, we're also not hearing a lot about uh, what the coalition has called the women's issue. Um, <laughs> And that would be the fact that a lot of women in Australia are really pissed off at the government and how it handled the last 18 months. Uh, and I think that that's one of those issues that, again, it, it's, it's a quiet issue. It's not going to be talked about in the campaign, but it's definitely going to be in the back of mind of a lot of people when they walk to that voting booth. And that's, that's probably the story of this election. It's at least from my point of view, it's not what where, and I say we journalists are talking about on the campaign trail. It is cost of living, it is climate, it is, you know, social justice. It's all of those issues that have built up over the last three years. And whether enough people in enough seats vote according to those issues will decide the election, but I think that it's something that all the pollsters and all the strategic um, political watchers haven't really taken into account. We're off having one conversation, voters are having another. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Can everybody please, before you give a round of applause to these ladies, help me in putting the pressure on them to tell us what they think will happen in three weeks? Because tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us. I came on to this stage three years ago and publicly humiliated myself by (laughs) being so so outrageously wrong on the election that no one takes me seriously anymore. What would you like to say about? Oh, this is really hard. I I don't feel good about this. 
could be like my good friend Malcolm McCarris and say, well, it could be a landslide yes. or it could be really tight. It could yeah. be a Labor government, a Liberal government or a... a it's a choice between two leaders. One of those leaders will vic be victorious on May 21. <laughs> Um, look, I, 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 am, I, am, I am not game to make a, a big prediction, I have to say. I do think the hung parliament is a more real option this time than we've seen in quite a while. And that will be an interesting challenge for whoever wins government. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that if that's what occurs. Uh, but I, I just, I don't think we're done yet. And I feel like we've got more scares coming as well. Yeah. Because I think... This well, there's campaign not much more so, policy coming. Well, so what else we're going to do? That's right. About? This is such a it's, it's, it's such a negative leaning campaign. It's so dependent on um, yeah. on casting doubt that I I just I fear that we will see a lot more of that that could throw those undecided people one she way or the other. Fears the fear. I fear the fear, uh, and so I'm not I'm not going to I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to make no, a call because no. I really do think, you know, it's it, it, if you talk to people inside both camps, it's. It still could go either yeah. way. And the mathematics is extremely complicated. Yeah, that's really. right. I mean, Scott Morrison's goat track that he sort of wangled his way through for that miracle wing last time is a lot skinnier mm. this time. And everyone agrees on that. But you're right, neither camp is uh, certainly, you know, Labor ain't doing cartwheels. No. no. I mean, Labor has to win seven seats outright. And hold everything. And, and not lose any, any, you know. Lose one, then it becomes eight. Lose two, it becomes nine. And it's got a whole swag of marginal seats it has to hold on to. The coalition only has, a, well, it's got a, basically no majority at the moment, so it can't afford to lose any. Uh, it's, it's super complicated. And there's these little pockets of seats in different states. There's, you know, there was all those border issues that made the sentiment quite different yep. in different states. There's people retiring in seats, which mean you lose incumbency in those seats, which makes it an open game. Then there's the teals. It is a really complicated equation this time, much more than usual. Mm. I mean, I love a hung parliament. Like, it's great for democracy. So. Okay. And the Greens, the Greens. And the Greens are polling very well. The yeah. Greens are polling strongly yeah. too. Yeah, the Greens could potentially be in a hung parliament, part of the balance of power. Um, no one's discounting that at all. I, d I agree with Karen that the pathway for both is really, really difficult. But I think people also need to keep in mind that for the last couple of elections, we pretty much had the status quo. I know that it seemed like Labor lost in the sort of a generational way last time, but that's because expectations were so high. It was only a couple well, of seats. Well, they did lose. They lost. I mean, but, they are in opposition. But I mean, like, they didn't lose in a way that it would take two elections to, to except get in Queensland. Yeah, well, I mean, like Queensland. I love, I love <laughs> the greatest nation on earth, but um, they were pretty angry at Bill Shorten. Um, and you'll see a margin correction in Queensland. I don't think you'll see any seats change hands, but there'll definitely be a margin correction. But I think that when we look at elections, we have to see whether there is a mood for change. And I'm not sure whether we have seen a mood for change sweep the nation and. In fact, when you read a lot of comments under news sites, not just The Guardian, like if you read under... Under, other news other sites. News sites um, if you listen to the Vox Pops, uh, mm. you've... You, and, you know, from ABC across the spectrum, a lot of people are quite sympathetic over how hard the last couple of years would have been to govern. And I think that that sympathy vote could also come in. And I think that's very true of the Voxes. I think that is. And there's another element too, right? Um, and you know that, that that case for change you talk about, you know it's not there 
because Labor doesn't talk about it. They don't talk about there being this widespread. It's not time. Because they're not saying that, are they? Oh, I'm just whoa. saying in terms of the vibe, not, you know, not Because they're saying, oh, not much change because they know there's not a move for change. What they're going for is this guy drives you nuts. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah. But well, does he drive them enough nuts? Yes. So this fear of change. That's the great unknown. That's that is, on that note, <laughs> Karen Middleton, Amy Ramikas, please give them a big round of applause. Thanks, guys. Thank you, both of you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Question, yes. What could a hung parliament look like? Uh, we've got obviously a lot of factors between the Greens and the Teal independents. What kind of impact could that have on who's going to form government? Great question. Okay, so a hung parliament, well, it could look like anything, but I've asked this question because it's a really obvious one of the Teal independents that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed at least three of them so far and have said, who will you support? Because it is a key question. Now, some people say, how dare you ask? Well, I think it's a relevant question. Who would you support? The main answer that seems they seem to give, and the last one was Josh Frydenberg's um, uh, competitor, and she said, Dr Monique Ryan, that the two issues that she would be judging it on would be integrity, integrity commission, a tough one, and a very ambitious climate change policy. So to that, I said, well, that would be Labor. You would be supporting Labor, because on those two issues, Labor has stronger policies than the coalition by your definition. She said, no, what I would be doing is bargaining for the toughest policies on that. So obviously pushing even the Liberal Party in that situation. So that what could happen is that the coalition might have more seats than Labor, but not the magic number, not, not you know, the 76, not enough to actually be in majority. And they might be have a couple of teal independents that could give them that majority, but they have to go into negotiations with them. And those people will not do a deal with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, unless he uh, gives them certain things, including tougher climate change action. But this is where it gets really interesting. Scott Morrison doesn't govern alone. He governs in a thing called the Coalition with a group called the Nationals. <laughs> At the start of each term, he must strike a deal with this party called the Nationals as well. So while he's negotiating with a couple of Teal independents to get to the magic number and have a majority on the floor and be able to go to the Governor-General and say, I can, I can form a government, I have majority with the support of these two people, let's say. If, if Scott Morrison can't pull it off because he's got the Nats here withdrawing support or the Teal people support, then Labor, even with fewer numbers on the floor, Albanese would be able to walk in and say, well, I can deal, do a deal with, all, with four of you even though I've got less, fewer Labor Party MPs on the floor because I can deliver a more ambitious climate change policy. That's the way the scenario could work and that's why as journalists, we do find that fascinating. And How could that land? That's essentially what happened with Julia Gillard, that it she is. was not favoured to... In, she was not thought to be in the box seat, but the two she negotiated with were former National Party uh, MPs, both of them, from National Party-leaning seats, but they both ended up, in large part thanks to Anthony Albanese, who a, was a very gifted negotiator at that time, um, but Julia Gillard to herself, um, forming 
behind Julia Gillard because she was prepared to give them what they wanted on water policy in particular and climate policy. So that was there. It is interesting to note there is one school of thought that Scott Morrison, remember it was not long before the election campaign where Scott Morrison came out and said he will not reintroduce the National Integrity Commission model and that was thought to be, why would he say this? You know, that was a promise. That's not going to help Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney or Dave Sharma in Wentworth. Why is he doing it? There's a school of thought that the, they may be keeping that off the table so they can put something better on the table if it comes to negotiating with a hung parliament. I don't know if that's right or not, but it could be there as a bargaining chip. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. The point is there's heaps of scenarios and uh, those independents, if they in, are in that box seat where they have all of this muscle, they did not run I'm, f for this parliament to to squib these key things they care about. Except there's a lot of pressure on them because all the seats they're running in have been blue ribbon heartland seats forever. Some of them have never been anything but blue ribbon liberal. So there is pressure too there from... But if they're running to achieve this incredible... Uh, change. You know, seismic change and it's not just a careerist move, they've got nothing to lose potentially. That's not about winning the next five elections. It's about going in and causing change. I think it's really interesting. Any other questions? Next question. Why is Labor so bad at campaigning? <laughs> oh, let's answer this one quickly. Like this campaign or generally? Well, you know, Labor had a reputation as being the killer marginal seat campaigners. That was their reputation. They were... When? Like in the 90s or something? Yeah, when I was looking at it. All right, all right, all right. I've seen a lot of campaigns and that was their reputation and they were better at it. Um, now they're not better at it. And I... Look. <laughs> I don't know that they're much worse than the other lot this time. But... Um, I think it goes down to who is really getting on top of those social media campaigns. I think a lot is being won or lost there. I think Scott Morrison is, has proven himself to be a very forensic messenger during campaigns. He does not go off message during campaigns and that is a real skill that he has. And, you know, that was very, very effective for him last time, even though a lot of the mainstream media was pointing out that he's really not offering anything in particular. It's really just a negative sort of, you know, contest against Bill Shorten's ideas at the time. He stuck to his message, and that is a particular skill. It is, and in terms of why is Labor bad at campaigning or why are they currently bad at campaigning, I think Labor's big issue is the one that the Coalition now has which is that for a long time they have had to straddle two constituencies yes. and they have found that very hard to do. And you know why? Because it is hard to do. The Liberal Party too is trying to deal with that duality and it's dealing with it in the inner city seats and then it's dealing with a, a completely different set of messaging that they're trying to make. And if you talk in to... Queensland, in parts of Queensland and those coal seats in particular. On that note, stop, because it's time now to thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you. say at the end of our podcast see you friend see you pk you've been listening to an abc podcast discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app